don't freeze. I never freeze. Welcome, everyone, to the Media Plug Podcast Network's first ever edition of SpoilerCast. Today, we'll be talking full spoilers about Marvel's latest release, which is already a box office sensation, Black Panther. With me today to help walk me walk through, unpack, and deliver only the hottest takes, I have Jay Habib. Jay, how is this snowy Sunday treating you? Have you spent a lot of time reflecting on what we saw last night? I really have, and as you mentioned, we saw this movie just last night at a 9.45 p.m. showing, so you know, I've kind of just spent the morning, you know, brunch, just pondering, really thinking about what I saw and how we can unpack that today. Did this movie keep you up late last night, thinking it, about it all night long? It, it kept me up for a couple hours, not gonna lie. Awesome. Well, there's no reason not to get right down to it and talk Black Panther. All right. This movie stars Chadwick Bosman in the titular role as Black Panther slash T'Challa, alongside a spectacular cast that includes Michael B. Jordan as the main villain, Eric Stevens slash Killmonger, Lupita Nyong'o as Nakia, Danai Gurira as Okoye, Letitia Wright as Shuri, Angela Bassett as Ramonda, Daniel Kaluuya as Wakabi, Forrest Whitaker as Zuri, Winston Duke as M'Baku, Martin Freeman as Everett Ross, and Andy Serkis as Ulysses Claw. Black Panther is directed by Marvel newcomer Ryan Coogler, and it is his third outing as director following 2013's Fruitvale Station and 2015's Creed. It also happens to be his third link-up with Michael B. Jordan, who has starred wonderfully in all three of these films in quite prominent roles. The movie has already cashed in over $25 million just in Thursday night previews and is expected to bank $192 million in its opening three-day weekend, before tacking on an additional $26 million on President's Day to total a whopping $218 million for the four-day holiday weekend. Impressive to say the least, and that is only in the U.S. The international predictions are somewhere in the range of $361 million for the four-day opening weekend total. So just staggering numbers, particularly for a February release, as we were kind of talking before we started recording. All right, to any of you who are still listening to this and haven't yet seen the movie, this is your final warning for spoilers, as nothing from now on will be off limits. Jay, I'd like to start, as we almost always do, with your general impressions of the film, and then we'll move on to some hot takes and talk about the plot in more detail. I think that the movie had a lot to live up to, given what we'd seen you know, across the board in terms of reviews on like Rotten Tomatoes, Metacritic, etc., and also in terms of, you know, how much money it had raked in just in its first couple of days. I mean, you know, we waited till Saturday to watch it. Um, yeah, the ticket predictions had been off the charts. I, I think, I don't know if we talked about this, but I remember seeing articles about how just the pre-ticket sales, which of course isn't the total revenue it's going to make on opening weekend, but the pre-ticket sales were some of the largest, if not the largest, in uh, box office history. Right. And I guess knowing all of that going into the movie, you know, there were definitely some high expectations. And as I told you on the ride out from the theater, I really, really enjoyed this movie. Not in the way I've enjoyed some other MCU movies, but I definitely really enjoyed it. Everything from the effects to some of the messages that were conveyed to even the action sequences, which, you know, to some people might be sort of an afterthought, given all that this movie tries to do. I thought the movie was pretty spectacular across the board. Yeah, this this film, I mean, it has its fair share of of action sequences. It is a superhero film, and, and it leans into that at times, absolutely. But it does, 
it does also lean into the more political aspect, not just in terms of what some people would, uh, what some people have been labeling it as like a black empowerment film, which it very much, I think, in some ways tries to be, but also in terms of just talking about how best to view people who are well off and how they should support others in the world, which maybe is more of a tangential part of this film in terms of thinking about that generally, but it's a it's a core crux to this film in terms of the conflict that the political conflict you see between T'Challa and his kind of long lost cousin Killmonger when he comes back. And honestly as well between some of the tribes, uh, particularly uh, one tribe in particular, which we'll talk about later when we get into the plot of the movie. Right. And I mean, as you said, you know, as we, we get along the plot, move along through the plot, excuse me, we'll, you know, talk about how the Jabari tribe, like, you know, kind of play one side in this like sort of political argument and how like, you know, Killmonger and T'Challa, of course, have like very different views and like what this might mean for, you know, the place the viewers put it as we move forward. But yeah, I think we should just dive right into the plot. And Well, before we do that, actually, I'd like to take a moment and just deliver some hot takes. Any any hot takes we have overarching throughout the film and, and then maybe we can explain them more through the plot. But was there anything good, bad, or both uh, that struck you as you, in the last, you know, it's it's barely been 15 hours since we walked out of the theater, if that. Uh, is there anything that's top of your mind in terms of hot takes? Honestly, this movie surprisingly funny. And I don't say surprisingly in that, like, let's say MCU movies aren't that funny, but I think for all the raves and reviews I've heard about this movie, I don't think enough credit has been given to, actually, this movie has quite a number of, like, pretty laugh out loud, like, a lot of laugh out loud lines. I don't know if you felt the same way. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I wouldn't describe that as a hot take. Uh, It's definitely uh, something to think about in terms of funny. There's some great lines. There's one in in the beginning of the movie that sticks out to me in particular about how uh, T'Challa froze like an antelope in headlights when he comes face to face for the first time in what appears to be quite a long time with his ex-girlfriend who he rescues early on in the movie. And that was a hilarious line, especially the way it was delivered um, by the uh, Denai Garari, who plays Okoye. Um, that was that was hilarious. I don't know if there's another one that's sticking out in your mind, or if that was the one that was that you were thinking of. I mean, that was definitely one that I found to be really funny. Um, I think a couple others that just stick out to me are, um, you know, T'Challa getting roasted for his slippers in the lab. You know, what are those? I cannot believe we, you know, threw back to that line, and it still just felt so funny, and it was so well delivered. Oh, I died during that scene. I couldn't stop laughing. All right, and again, you know, when he. Uh, I mean, when he, you know, kicks at the suit twice, like, first knocking it across the room and then getting sent back. And then finally, I mean, even at the end when that little kid talks about, you know, that Bugatti spaceship, I thought that was just really funny and, like, totally out of the blue, but great. Yeah, no, the the humor wasn't an element, I'll agree with you, that I was thinking about going into this movie, especially given all the hype around it and what it meant to a lot of people going in and, and why it has been so acclaimed. It's not necessarily because of the humor, but the humor is definitely a positive element of this film and, and something I really enjoyed going through it. One of the hot takes for me in this film, uh, besides the one scene with just awful special effects, which isn't, again, I don't really think that's a hot take because I don't think people are going to disagree that much that that scene had bad effects. But there was, there is, um, there is one thing that stuck out to me and that was kind of the rushed nature of Killmonger's character. I think Michael B. Jordan was fantastic, and we'll talk more as we delve into the plot about his performance as well as Killmonger as a character. But I didn't love how his character developed. I thought the arc made sense, and if I kind of zoomed all the way out, it was it was linear in a way that made sense to me, even if even if I didn't necessarily agree with all the turns that it took. 
but I was frustrated at the end of the film with how rushed his character was, especially given Michael B. Jordan's fantastic performance and also the potential for Killmonger as a character in the film. I don't know if you agree or disagree with that. I, I think to go ahead and make this a hot take, I'll just give you my like full... Yes. I thought that he was well on his way to becoming my favorite MCU villain. I think un- like right up until the point where he throws T'Challa you know, kind of off the mountain or the waterfall, he was like well on his way. I think that the one person that kind of sticks out to me besides him... Who like we've talked about a little bit is Loki, um, but his like you know blurred roles as like villain slash you know supporting character like aside, I think that Michael B. Jordan's performance was spectacular, and I I was really liking the way it was going until we had about five minutes where it went from you know I am angry and I deserve this throne to we are just going to throw the world into a apocalyptic event. Yeah, I mean essentially take over the world. I think there's he he maybe puts it a little bit more diplomatic than that in terms of providing weapons for people who have been oppressed to overthrow uh, what he might call like colonial governments, which is definitely a political, so like a socio-political conversation that emerges out of this movie that's definitely worth having. But it's so rushed in. And it's not that, that the sequence of events doesn't make sense in terms of how his character develops. It's just, as you say, it just happens so quickly. You're just like, Wow, that that just sped up to like 100 miles per hour there for a few minutes. And it's something that I wish had been more methodically developed. And I think that it would make the character stronger if it were that way. I think so too. I think that even with just like one or two more scenes, we could have maybe understood his motivations for that a little bit more. I distinctly remember this one line later in the film where he says, you know, like the world took everything from him. And I, I don't... I didn't think to undermine his, you know, struggle growing up without his father, let's say, but I almost like wish we, you know, we could have explored that a little more. Like at this point, all we're seeing is, you know, he wants revenge for his father's death. And I'm not entirely sure, like, you know, like how the leap is made to, all right, we're going to start this worldwide revolution as a result. Yeah. I don't know if I'd go as far to say I don't understand how the world revolution is a result of that. But I do agree that it's this strange kind of, okay, we know he lost his father. We know that T'Challa's father, T'Chaka, when he was the king of the Wakanda, the Black Panther, did kill his father. But then we also know that he attended MIT. He graduated from the Naval Academy, I believe it was, or or West Point, one of the military schools, and then proceeded, essentially describes him as a genius who becomes a soldier, who's one of the most effective soldiers. He becomes a black op a black op soldier, I believe. And then all of a sudden he's on this world-conquering mission and really kind of portrays him in a almost derogatory way in a sense of, of belittling his experiences down to the point where he just wants to take over the world, even though from the beginning of the film when he's being described to us, he is this genius, it seems like. It's very strange, kind of the dichotomy. And I think that... I like that you mentioned it as kind of a dichotomy because I think at some points, yeah, you do look at him as kind of a genius, but when he, you know, comes into this, you know, revolution mindset, it almost feels like he's just, you know, like angry and out for, like, I don't I don't get the sense that he's as smart as he was before. Like, he's not some sort of, like, quote-unquote enlightened radical, let's say. Like, he's right. more just like, this is what we have to do. Like, I'm out for blood now. Yeah, and you, there's only, and to be fair, there's really only one scene. the The first scene you see with you see you see him in when he's in the art gallery talking to the curator 
before they make off with the Wakandan artifacts, that you understand that, you know, this guy is really smart. Like, he knows his history, he knows what he's doing, and he's very good at what he's doing. And then you have this description of him as being this genius based on his academic background, based on his achievements in life so far. And those seem, to me, very disconnected, especially after he returns to Wakanda, or I should say goes to Wakanda for the first time. And... I think that's a part of this kind of rushed character development that I'm forming into this hot take that I wish this character was developed better and portrayed better on screen. That being said, I think it might be worth just to go ahead and jump into the plot now as we've given uh, some good coverage to maybe one of our one of the one of the more hesitant things we are to praise about this film. All right, so we kind of brushed up on some of the plot details already, but to get us going, there's a very brief opening kind of animation about the history of Wakanda, which was nice because I don't know about you, but I didn't know much about Wakanda going in or how this was formed. I knew it existed from the other Marvel movies in the series, but I didn't know much about Wakanda, so I appreciated that. And then the first juicy scene for us to discuss, I think, is the flashback to 1992, where T'Chaka, a scene we've briefly referenced already, goes to Oakland, California to essentially confront confront his brother over some over a betrayal of the Wakandan people. What did you think of this kind of opening sequence, especially since we didn't have the full details of what went ha- what happened in that scene early on? Right, and I think that it, it kind of set up, you know, some of the political motivations we'd see later in the film. I think I was a little unclear as to, you know, exactly what I was supposed to be picking up from that scene because we didn't have all the information. But, you know, I thought it was good. I thought it gave, it, it very much showed us where, like, T'Chaka's isolationist mindset, I guess, you know, sat. Like, I guess we, you know, we kind of see that, you know, he's of the isolationist perspective and that. Yeah. And, a, and it will say it gives that isolationist mindset a bit of a bit of a positive spin, a positive spin that doesn't really exist later in the film, I don't think. Right. And I think that it was good for seeing that. And it was good. I, I think that, you know, it, it became pretty clear early on, especially in conversations um, between T'Challa and Nakia about how he could be doing more. Um, that, OK, like this is kind of where the film is going to go. I thought, you know, it was a nice like setup to the film. It was. Uh, exciting and you know of course had the tie back uh to ulysses claw who you know we'd uh, met a couple movies ago in age of ultron yeah i actually hadn't even remembered i I didn't remember actually even meeting ulysses claw though once he came up in the film i was like oh right we've we've heard of this person before we've seen this person before and it was a good scene like i said it it's kind of one that's given more context later so i think we might revisit it at a later point so maybe don't dwell on it too long here but then we flash back to the present and this is now kind of taking place after the events of uh, Civil War, where T'Challa is returning to Wakanda to you know, take on the mantle of king of the Wakandan people, to take on the, the true mantle of the Black Panther. And on his way, we get this fun little scene with, with him and Okoye rescue, rescuing, in quotation marks, I think, Nakia uh, to take her back to Wakanda with them so that she can attend T'Challa's uh, ceremony where he becomes king. What did you think of this kind of neat little action sequence? It's our first kind of real, more, you know, Black Panther in combat sequence in the film. I mean, I thought, I thought it was really cool. You know, you you kind of get, like, the slow buildup of terror. Like, you're in the woods, it's very dark, and you just hear something kind of out there, and then all of a sudden, like, the Black Panther is here. Yeah, and the atmospheric nature of that scene is spot on. I mean, I think it was well shot. It was exciting, and, you know, it like, Nakia's reveal was pretty cool. Like, oh, you know, she's this, like, badass undercover uh spy she's spy. a spy yes yeah. there you go uh spy um 
And of course, you know, we do get kind of those funny lines about him like freezing and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Okoye tells him not to freeze when he sees Nakia for the first time and he froze. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, that, that was probably the first time I laughed out loud in the movie and rightfully so. So moving on quickly, we start at this point kind of flipping back and forth between uh, narratives almost. And at this point, we, we switch over to London in the UK where we're introduced to Eric Stevens and reintroduced to Ulysses Claw, where these two have kind of collaborated to steal a Wakandan artifact from a British museum. And this is the first scene of Michael B. Jordan in the film, and it, it, instantly he just owns the screen, in my opinion. I don't know if your opinion of him in this scene differs from mine. It doesn't sound like it does. I thought he, you know, commanded my attention, and I, you know, was... Like, it felt a little... I won't lie, it felt a little strange at the beginning because of the roles I previous previously associate him with. And, uh, like, I wasn't entirely sure, you know, what his role in this movie was. Little things from, like, the lack of an accent to just, you know, like, it almost felt like, a you know, Adonis Creed was talking on screen. Like, it took, like, a split second to get past that. But once I did, you know, once he started talking about the... How, you know, the artifact was stolen in the first place. And you're like, how do you think you guys got it and whatnot? Like, I... I was very immediately put into this mindset of, oh, like, we have a very different Michael B. Jordan on screen, who, one who I'm really excited to see. Yeah, I've only seen Michael B. Jordan in the three films that Ryan Coogler has directed. I haven't seen any of his other work, albeit limited, because he hasn't been in that many movies, to be honest. But my first association with him is not Creed, but Fruitvale Station, which is an equally different character from both Killmonger in this film as well as uh, Creed, Adonis Creed and Creed. And it's so awesome to see him really show off the full range of acting capabilities that he has. As you say, he's immediately portrayed as this intellectual person who understands history, who can have a conversation with this curator and also, I mean, to no fault of the curator, also correct her. And at the same time, instantly switch over into kind of dominating the screen in terms of taking control of the situation, manipulating the people around him, and making off of these artifacts. And at this point, we flip back. Again, We again these flipping back and forth. We flip back over to Wakanda and T'Challa. And a very nice scene. It's not one that maybe will stick with you for a really long time, but I really enjoyed this first introduction to his family. His mother, Ramonda, played by Angela Bassett, and his sister, who I think is one of the coolest characters in this film. Maybe my favorite character, actually. Shuri, who's played by Letitia Wright. What did you think of this introduction to these characters as well as kind of the the banter, if you will, between these two, T'Challa and also Okoye? I mean, I, I thought the banter was really well done. Like I said, you know, this movie is like quite funny. And these characters are all really memorable. I think that Shuri, you know, could well contend for my favorite character in the movie too. She's funny, she's witty, she's very smart. Definitely um, based off of, or at least in, in spirit, based off of Q from the James Bond series because she's portrayed as this kind of intellectual driving force. Uh, in the Wakanda, and, and even though she's the little sister, uh, she <laughs> makes all of the technology. She's in, the person in charge of designing these weapons, designing the armor that T'Challa will wear in battle. She's just a really cool person in this film. I think so too, and it was you know really just a lot of fun to watch them interact on screen. Yeah, their chemistry was incredible. That yeah. was one of the high. I mean, we'll talk about this later once we actually get to more of their interactions because this is their first one. But their chemistry is spot on throughout the film. I think so too. And, you know, not long after that, we get to the scene where uh, T'Challa, you know, loses the power of the Black Panther and, you know, has to uh, 
essentially engaged in like this, you know, combat for the role of king. And, you know, even in watching how Ramonda and Shuri, you know, react to his like fight sequences, you know, it's it's much more serious, but it it you know it feels very real. It, I you know, it gets like heartfelt like watching them. Obviously It's know, visceral. Yeah. And you're not, you know, terribly worried that he's going to lose this very early battle in the movie. Um but you know, you, you get the sense that, you know, they very much like care about each other and it's a it's just it was well done. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the 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 fact that you bring up about them really caring about each other, I think, is something that really resonates with me in almost all of their interactions. And it's not saying that like other movies, it's not clear to me that the family members don't care about each other, but it is something that sticks out in the film that the film does such a good job portraying of their characters, especially these central Wakandan characters that we're talking about. And it ha- like I agree that it, it needs to be called out, and I'm glad that you did because it's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, what did you think of that, you know, fight scene with the leader of the Jabari tribe, M'Baku? Yeah, M'Baku, yeah. He, he, so this was a cool scene. I, kind of leading into it, you get these visually stunning views of Wakanda and these waterfalls that they're fighting on, as well as, you know, even before this scene, the the rainforest that they fly through, that that is like the shield protecting Wakanda. And this fight scene is cool. You know, it's not it's not Black Panther, right? This Black Panther, as you rightfully said, has been stripped away from stripped away from T'Challa in this instance, and yet he uh, he fights on nevertheless. And you really get this more human, mortal aspect of him. He, at one point, he's stabbed, I believe, in the chest or in the shoulder, and he kind of leans into it and really kicks it into another level to finally defeat Mbaku. And in a very kind of regal way. Thinking of the people, of the Wakandan people more generally, he makes a very concerted effort to not kill M'Baku in this battle, to be a king who not necessarily is merciful, but is understanding of the context of the people that he's ruling, even if the Jabari tribe is a tribe that doesn't necessarily conform to the traditional Wakandan norms and lives out on their own in the mountains. And I think that this is kind of our first glimpse of T'Challa as that this is the kind of king he wants to be. Other people in those in that instance... Potentially even his father might have killed M'Baku in that moment. But he chooses not to for whatever reason, which I think the movie goes into a bit more detail kind of explaining through future events, uh, explaining why he he chooses not to kill him. But it was something that I noted in my mind because it would have been very easy just to throw him off the cliff in that instance. Right, and I think you summed it up really well in that you know we do learn a lot about T'Challa's character even though the motivations for this action might not be explained till later on in the film. You kind of get the sense that, you know, he isn't this, you know, bloodthirsty, you know, I am going to, like, assert my dominance by killing anyone who stands in my way type of ruler you, you know, might have expected. Like, he's quite the opposite. Yeah. And that being said, kind of the, you know, he visits his father in the ancestral realm and they have this scene where he, you see his vulnerabilities. He makes himself vulnerable to his father, talking about how he doesn't know how to be a good king. And I don't know if there's anything in this particular mini scene that you want to talk about. At all, but it's interesting to see the contrast between the scene before it with this battle where he spares Mbaku's life, and the scene after this one where he decides that he's going to bring Claw to justice. So Ulysses Claw comes back on their radar in South Korea where he's attempting to sell this artifact that he and Killmonger had stolen from the museum, and T'Challa decides that he's going to go to South Korea with Okoye and Nakia, and you know essentially bring justice to Claw and. It's ambiguous somewhat whether he's going to kill Claw when he gets there, but eventually he promises one of the one of the tribal leaders that he's going to bring him back alive 
and allow him to see justice the Wakandan way in terms of being put on trial, et cetera, et cetera. What did you think of kind of this contract? Because like I mentioned before, you see him spare someone's life in the scene before and then be ruthless in terms of the promising justice for Claw. Granted, you know, these are different people with different kind of crimes, if you will, in quotation marks, against the Wakandan people in the past. Sure. I mean, I think that there are a lot of different dynamics at play, uh, one, of the which, one of which you just mentioned. Um, you know, Claw has, Claw is probably the least liked person by the Wakandan people, given what he was able to do back in 1992, whereas M'Baku, you know, is the leader of a tribe of the Wakandan, or, you know, in Wakanda, and... You know, I, I mean, I don't think it's terribly surprising that T'Challa might be, you know, more receptive to the idea of not killing one and, you know, might be more receptive to the idea of killing another. I think that scene with his father also was meant to kind of like flip a switch a little bit, you know, almost like... Put him in the mindset of being king. Right. Push him to, you know, make some sort of, I mean, to be decisive, essentially, yeah. as a king. And I think that, you know, having the opportunity to uh, catch Claw you know, this enemy of Wakanda for almost 30 years, you know, really, like, forces him to try to get into that headspace of, like, okay, like, I am going to do this. I am the king. Yeah. And he makes that decision, and, you know, he gets differing advice from different advisors from different tribal leaders, but he ultimately decides that he's going to bring Claw. He's going to go find Claw in South Korea and bring him to justice. And before we get to that scene, we do get this fantastic scene between he, between him and his sister Shuri, where he's getting all of his tech, all of his gear, all of his armor. And, I mean, this is one of my... I don't know if it's my favorite scene in the film, but it's one of... It's definitely up there because, one, the technology is just so cool. Shuri, again, is just awesome. But also just the scene the scene itself and things that happen are hilarious. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, I mentioned earlier the scene where, you know, he tries out this new suit that absorbs kinetic energy first by, like, hitting it across the room, something you totally do not see coming. Um... And then, you know, immediately after, like, hits it, and you see him kind of get taken out and the room just kind of get disheveled a little bit. Because yeah, the cause the suit absorbs kinetic energy from blows uh, that it initially takes. And then his sister's like, go ahead, kick it again. And while recording it, taking a video of it, which is one of the funniest parts of it, kicks it again. And the kinetic energy stored from the original kick uh, is rebounded back at him, knocking him backwards. And he funnily says, kind of in the scene, he says, delete that video right now, which is, uh, I just died. I just died during it. Yeah, me too. I mean, it was, again, like a really well done scene and really just highlighted the chemistry between these two actors and yep. really, you know, made me care about these two characters a lot yep. more. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure to see these two interact on screen. I, I'm i not sure if I've seen a movie with Letitia Wright in it before, but man, I want to. I want to go find out what else she's done and, and go watch it. So moving on to this first big set piece we talked about, the showdown in South Korea between T'Challa, Nakia, and Okoye, and Claw. And so we go to this casino. The, that's kind of the setting here for this for this big scene, or at least the beginning of it. And they're staking it out, and then all of a sudden, Claw shows up. But before that, T'Challa runs into an old friend who we've also met in Civil War, I believe, and that is Agent CIA Agent Everett Ross, played by Martin Freeman. And you know, it's always funny because I, I just eternally will associate Martin Freeman with being uh, Watson from the Sherlock BBC series. So it's always funny, one, just to see him in, an, in another film, uh, but also to see him, to hear him use an American accent, which he's actually pretty good at. And uh, it, what did you think of this kind of – it wasn't a shock. We knew, we knew that Martin Freeman was going to be in this film, so we knew he was going to come back as Everett Ross. But what did you think? 
Uh, I'm actually going to – well, I'm going to push back for my own sake. I actually was not expecting oh, you to didn't? see him. Oh, okay. I mean, okay. maybe if I had even seen him in the trailers, I guess I had just, it just kind of slipped out of my mind. But I think, you know, that scene kind of did a good job of, like, again, like you know, building the tension before this, like, big fight sequence, again, breaks out. Yeah. You kind of get a sense of what's at stake here. I think you're, you know, he is a CIA agent, and I think that given his role in Civil War, you're already made to be a little bit wary of him, and that kind of continues in his introduction in this movie, you know, before he kind of redeems, him, or not redeems, but rather, you know, uplifts his character image in your eyes at the end of the movie. I think that, you know, like, it, this this does a good job, like, kind of putting us on our toes. And I don't know if you want to talk about the cameo by Stan Lee right now, since it also was in this scene and provided, you know, kind of a, a funny moment. I mean, we can mention it now. We'll we'll circle back around to it at the end. But yeah, so Stan Stanley, uh, he's so what? T'Challa steps in to steps in to the the same table as Everett Ross, I believe. Uh, bets one round, and I think they're playing craps, maybe, and walks off after talking briefly to Everett Ross and telling him to that you know to get out of their way, essentially. And as he walks off, he wins the craps throw. And yeah, but it is not there to collect his winnings. And Stanley just you know sidles over and says, "I'll I'll 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 take these for safekeeping," uh, until he comes back. And it, it was funny. It was brief. It was a good cameo, I would say, uh, given the, given the range of Stanley cameos that that we've seen across the MCU. This was a good. This was a pretty funny one. But shortly after this Stanley cameo, we we do get our first set piece, as I kind of described it. Claw walks in with all of his henchmen. They're packing heavy weaponry. There's a joke made about like, oh, I thought there were guns weren't allowed in this, in this, in this, uh, in this casino because there is a metal detector on the way in. But those rules don't apply to Claw's men. And shortly after, I believe it's Okoye who gets made by one of the one of the guards, one of the henchmen of Claw, and all hell breaks loose. And uh, I do like the beginning of this fight where Everett Ross is immediately like, you know, this isn't good, and and deflects a couple bullets. From, by lifting his uh, metal briefcase with the diamonds that he was going to use to pay for the Wakandan artifact, which, you know, it's nothing special, but I I liked I liked that quick little shot. But then what did you think of this kind of scene, starting in the casino, we're going to get to the car chase scene in a second, but starting in the casino, what did you think of this kind of showdown? I thought it was really good. Again, you know, we've talked previously about how some fight scenes in the MCU, you know, aren't particularly well cut. I thought this one was super well done. You know, I, I kind of enjoyed watching the fight break out. I like that scene where, you know, uh, Everett Ross holds up his briefcase. I like just, you know, seeing the bullets kind of nail into them, um, as you mentioned. And yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was well done. Yeah. And the fighting styles of especially Okoye, but also Nakia and T'Challa are just really fun to watch. They're so different than what you expect or what, not, I shouldn't say what you expect, but what we've seen from other superhero movies not just in their kind of close combat nature, where I mean, you have Iron Man who shoots, you know, energy energy bullets essentially. Uh, Thor does fight with his hammer, though. Oftentimes you'll see him throwing it, things like that. And you know, I'm just thinking of kind of the Captain America. I guess is more hand to hand, but the weaponry that the Wakandans use, it's, it's a very different style, and that diversity of style is something that I really appreciate, especially as I've been watching a lot of Marvel movies recently. As have you been? Um, but what did you what did you think of kind of the the fight style of uh, particularly I'm thinking of Okoye most, but all of the Wakandans. I mean, it was it was fun, it was acrobatic, it was creative, and I thought I mean it was just a real pleasure yeah. to watch compared to some of the fight scenes we've seen. Yeah, it's gotten some some in some ways it's gotten a little bit old some of the fight scenes that we've seen, and this really freshens it up uh, tremendously. And so you know, 
T'Challa tries to stop Claw before he leaves. He gets shot back by the his own Wakandan technology, actually, that Claw has on his arm. And the fight scene is taken outside where we get some a display of some really cool technology in this one. As you have Okoye and Nakia take off in one car to chase Claw, you get a little bit of help from Shuri as they attach a device to allow Shuri to remotely drive this car that then T'Challa kind of rides on top of throughout the scene. And... You know, this is something. This is a scene that w- that displayed very prominently in the trailers leading up to Black Panther. So we definitely knew this scene was coming. We knew he was going to be riding a car, but even knowing it, it was still a really cool scene when you saw the full thing uh, in the film. Yeah, I mean, I think it kicked off. You know, again with like another really funny line where Shuri asks, like, "Which side of the road is it again?" And you know, even though yeah, we'd seen bits and pieces of this scene both in uh, trailers for the movie, but I think also a commercial or two. Um, you know, I was still, like, really excited to watch it, you know, watch Panther, like, jump around, do these acrobatic moves through the air. Um, eventually, you know, Everett Ross comes back around, and, I mean, to me, at least it becomes sort of an afterthought. Um, but the pursuit itself was really fun to watch. Agreed. I don't know if there's any reason to dwell on the scene. I don't think it, it really inspires much com- conversation, except for the fact that it was another, it was a, it was an example of another cool action sequence that's different from some of the things that we've seen throughout the MCO, which we kind of already mentioned just a moment ago. Right, so they do capture Claw. They they take him back to Wakanda, or they at least attempt to take him back to Wakanda because they hold him for one day in this kind of CIA site, I'm assuming, in South Korea as well. And that one day is enough for Killmonger to show up and and break Claw out as he tries to, you know, enlighten Everett Ross about who the Wakandans really are. And this kind of first scene here with Killmonger in a more kind of battle scenario. It's very brief. He's wearing the mask that he stole from the museum, which I really liked and wish there had actually kind of been more of in the film. But is there anything that you want to talk about this scene? Everett Ross takes a bullet for Nakia, I believe, in this scene and and kind of drives the plot forward in that way. But is there anything about this scene in particular that stuck out to you? To me, it's Klaus' performance, or Andy Serkis, rather. His you know performance in this interrogation scene was really fun for me to watch. We'd gotten kind of a taste of it back in Avengers Age of Ultron when he's talking to um, Scarlet Witch, Quicksilver, and eventually Ultron, you know, about how, like, he couldn't be tortured. And in this scene, you know, I, I really like that he kind of presses at, you know, this nerve trying to expose T'Challa and uh, Wakanda for their amazing technology. And, I mean, also, like you said, I really liked seeing uh, Michael B. Jordan show up in his mask and kind of just wreak havoc on this scene. Yeah, it's it, as we talked about Michael B. Jordan earlier being kind of absorbing in his first scene uh, in the movie. In this, I think it, this is the scene where Andy Serkis is absorbing, and he does such a fantastic job grabbing your attention. And even though Everett Ross is the one interrogating him, it almost feels like Everett Ross is is kind of more the subject of this scene more than the interrogator. And and again, it's not something to dwell on too much because it's a pretty brief scene in terms of content just drives the plot the plot forward by breaking by breaking claw out and and providing Everett Ross with this injury that needs to be addressed but it was still it was still a moment of brilliant performance by Andy Serkis who has put in many brilliant performances over the course of his career it must be said yeah and I think that just to kind of wrap the scene up you know T'Challa notices that Killmonger has this ring around his neck and I don't know about you I hadn't actually noticed that that ring was a part of T'Challa's like, ar- um, aesthetic or arsenal, but 
I mean, it becomes, you know, pretty clear that there's something kind of greater at play here. And I think that, you know, we find out more about it after he goes home, but it kind of sets us up for, oh, like, you know, he, that there's something more at play. Yeah, I remember that ring. I remember him putting on that ring in Civil War after T'Chaka dies, after T'Chaka's killed. I don't think it had really come up before in, in Black Panther proper here. And I hadn't really noticed that the ring was the same either. I mean, I, I've noticed the ring around his neck on the chain that he wears, but I hadn't noticed that it was the same ring. And and it's, I mean, maybe there's some belief suspension around T'Challa being able to notice the ring as well, although the ring is incredibly important to his family and, and to him as well as it was passed down from, is as the Black Panther is supposed to wear it, I believe, or or something like that. Maybe I'm totally off there. But he notices it nevertheless. But before we address that, before he kind of wrestles with that back in Wakanda, he does have to make this very important decision to take Everett Ross back to Wakanda with him. And that's not one that is easily made because he receives a lot of opposition from Okoye, who's more of a traditional Wakandan, doesn't really like bringing outsiders in, is very opposed to kind of the exposure of Wakandan technology to the world more proper, this isolationist view that we talked about earlier with T'Chaka. But... T'Challa, nevertheless, overrides that advice and decides to take Everett Ross back with him. And that drives the plot forward, and now going back to Wakanda. And it's another example of how T'Challa is this person who is a little bit more measured and in some ways maybe even undecided about where he stands in this whole global context of should the Wakandans be isolationists like T'Chaka, the direction that T'Chaka had, had taken them in in the past, or this kind of opposite worldview of we should do what we can to aid oppressed people out in the world. And that's the view that people like Killmonger, but also people who currently live in Wakanda also have. I don't know if that if this is another moment that struck you as it did me. I think it did. I mean, it put T'Challa kind of, you know, in this interesting situation where, I mean, not just because of what it meant in terms of exposing Wakanda to a CIA agent who, again, you're meant to be very wary of. Um, you know, from very early on in the film, possibly from an earlier film, but you also see this kind of conscious decision to put all their efforts towards saving Ross rather than pursuing Claw, which, you know, does come back to bite him later, but I, I think it, you know, simultaneously showed, like, you know, a moment of decisiveness, but also, like you said, kind of his more measured mindset. He, uh, you know, really thinks, like, you know, I feel like he just thinks this through a little more and is maybe a little more, like, cons- like, I don't know, considerate, I guess, of yeah. the people around him. You know, he th- he thinks it through, and, and almost the word that I come to is that he's unsure of the thing to do. But once he makes his decisions, he's also, he's kingly. He's he may, he's very decisive once he's made his decision. But there are these moments of unsureness, almost, that kind of arise out of, at least from my perspective, arise out of these situations where he's making these tough choices, which isn't a bad thing, right? He's someone who's making difficult choices, and we know that he's someone who doesn't necessarily yet feel like he is the person who should be making these difficult choices. Right, and I think that that's something that, you know we, we kind of keep in mind from the moment he takes the throne. Is yeah, he, he he really doesn't know, you know, what he's supposed to be doing. Even though you know he's kind of been preparing for it his whole life, it's very different. You know, once you're kind of in the driver's seat, and you know it it is it makes him relatable. I think to you know see him kind of struggle, like you know make decisions, but also be like, was this the right thing to do and whatnot. Right, and so. He makes his decision. They take Ross back to Wakanda, and while he is being healed by Shuri, T'Challa confronts Zuri, who is this kind of right-hand 
man in a way in terms of like the more spiritual aspect of the Wakandan people. He is the person who oversees all of these ritual rites that we talked about earlier in terms of the ritual combat and also uh, helping T'Challa ascend to the throne in the sense of following the necessary rituals, you know, consuming the uh, heart-shaped herb as well as visiting the ancestral realm. He helps guide T'Challa across all this. And T'Challa confronts Zuri about this ring that he notices around Killmonger's neck. And what he learns is that his father, from back in that first opening scene, the flashback to 1992, actually had killed his own brother. And not just killed his own brother, but didn't give him proper burial, left his his brother's son, his own his nephew, behind to live in a world where his father had been killed. And, you know, part of the context of this is that one of the reasons that T'Chaka's brother kind of betrayed the Wakanda people is because he was made so aware of the oppression, of the racism that existed in the wider world, uh, particularly, I suppose, in America, because that's where he's located. And T'Chaka made the decision not just to kill his brother, who ostensibly killed his brother because he was about to attack Zuri, who was also there, but also leaving this child behind in a world of racism and oppression instead of bringing him back to Wakanda. And that's something that, in some ways, you can almost see tear T'Challa apart in this scene. And I don't know if there's much to talk about. It's a huge moment in the film in terms of revelations. But is there anything about the scene that struck you, particularly in terms of any of the performances from either Forrest Whitaker, who plays Zuri, or Chadwick Bosman, who plays T'Challa? I think they both do a pretty fantastic job, you know, given all that's at stake here. I think that, like you said, it really is just a scene of revelation. But given, you know, everything that has been on T'Challa's mind, especially, you know, with his, like, former lover telling him, you know, like, we could be doing more and sticking out, like, now finding out that his father killed his own brother, like, you know, his own uncle, T'Challa's uncle, um, you know, as kind of, you know, in defending this, like, isolationist perspective, as, as you said, it tears him apart, and, you know, it it puts our hero, you know, kind of in a place, you know, where we, we just feel for him more. Yeah, and the movie at that point leaves us to feel for T'Challa in that way and flips back over to Killmonger and, and Claw, who, having escaped the CIA kind of head operation, you know, operation, they kind of go back out into this playing field. They're going to kind of escape. They're going to find a new buyer for this Wakandan tech. If they, th- Yeah, because he still has the Wakandan tech at this point, right? I think he does. And at this point, Killmonger is clear his end game is not to have this Wakandan tech. This, his end game is not to make money off this. His end game is to kill Claw and take him back to the Wakanda people to kind of prove who he is and prove his rightful, he is the rightful heir to this throne because of T'Chaka's betrayal. He, the T'Chaka-T'Challa line doesn't deserve to have the throne. And so what he does is he double-crosses Claw. He, he kills his henchman. He kills his own partner when Claw takes her as kind of hostage and then does kill Claw himself before flying back to Wakanda. This is a moment that I wasn't quite sure how it was going to develop. I, I knew at some point he was going to have to make his way to Wakanda, but it was still a startling scene, especially to ruthlessly kill his own partner. I don't know if you thought that that was kind of a quick change in, and not necessarily character, but a quick fleshing out of the character in terms of, oh, this is the ruthless black ops soldier. I, I think that, I mean, it very much was that to me. I think that I hadn't really gotten a glimpse of just how ruthless he could be. Like, I mean, he was cold and calculating, but, you know, how with, you know, what ease he went ahead and killed his own partner was a little bit surprising. And, yeah, I mean, just that, you know, that cold-bloodedness just kind of comes through. And I think, you know, you find more reason to realize, like, oh, wow, like, this is going to be one hell of an adversary for our hero. 
Yeah, and at this point, the movie quickly transitions over to Killmonger going to Wakanda and bringing Claw's body as kind of a offering to the Wakandan people to show that he's he's the real deal. He he does have a right to be in the throne room or to at least challenge for the throne, and that's exactly what he does. We're kind of skipping through a couple scenes really quickly here, but he finds this very quick ally in Wakabi, who is someone we've been alluding to for a little while now, but he is this leader of one of the tribes of the Wakandan people who is very anti-isolationist, very anti-Tachaka's political philosophy, and really thinks that the Wakandan people should do more to aid people who are being oppressed in the world uh, more widely. And it's really easy for him to quickly get behind Killmonger. Not necessarily in the sense of overthrowing T'Challa's rule, but as a direction for the country to go in and a political ideology to rally behind. Sure, and I think that you know, you have to keep in mind his motivations, Wakabi's motivations. Certainly, you know, his motivations for supporting Killmonger also come from the fact that Killmonger has brought justice to Claw, who killed Wakabi's parents. You know, not a day goes by where he doesn't think about that and, like, you know, wish Claw in the ground and wish to see justice served. And He was so disappointed when, just a few scenes before, T'Challa failed to bring Claw back uh, for him to be given justice, be to serve justice. To, to your point. Exactly. And I think that, you know, upon seeing his, you know, current king, whose ideology he doesn't necessarily agree with, fail at this, you know, task of monumental importance, you know, to see this other heir apparent to the throne come by and, you know, so easily, I mean, you know, with such ease it appears, like, you know, have dismantled and killed Claw. You know, you, you understand why he does it. Yeah. And we got, this is the kind of point in the, in the film which you were talking about earlier in our sort of hot takes portion that things really speed up to 100 miles per hour. And not just in terms of Killmonger's character, but the events happening really quickly, right? So Killmonger comes to Wakanda, challenges T'Challa to uh, fight for the throne, this kind of ritual battle that we've already seen happen once where T'Challa succeeded over M'Baku but is now happening again, and it's Killmonger's right as someone who does have a lineage uh, related to the throne, does have a bloodline directly to the throne. And to make kind of a, a longer scene a little bit shorter, T'Challa doesn't win this fight. In fact, Killmonger kind of dominates him. Not only does he end up throwing T'Challa off the waterfall cliff that we had alluded to earlier that would have been really easy for T'Challa to throw M'Baku off of, not only that... But he also kills Zuri in this moment as Zuri interfered with the battle and then asks, <clears throat> asks Killmonger to kill him instead of T'Challa because it really was his fault that his father died and, and not T'Challa's. Right. And kind of to just, you know, add on to what you said a second ago about how quickly all this picks up, you know, we, I mean, the stranger shows up, you know, proves that he is a member of, you know, uh, the Wakandan people. And just like that, you know, we go from, you know, like this argument in the throne room, you know, at which point, you know, we hear like, you know, it'll take weeks to set up another combat challenge to, you know, I challenge him like right now. And just like that, you know, T'Challa is like overthrown. You know, it's been maybe an hour since we saw him like secure the throne. Yeah, if even that. If even that. And yeah, yeah I mean, you know, it, it things really do kind of speed up here. I wasn't at the point where I started to get a little bit disgruntled with it. I think that, you know, it just... Yeah, it wasn't until later when that became, you were really like, wow, this really developed quickly, but... Right. But I mean, I thought that scene was really well done. It was, you know, it really like tugged at some of my heartstrings and it, you know, really just showed me how, you know, terrifying Killmonger is. Like Michael B. Jordan really flexes his acting muscles, you know, when he is 
completely dominating T'Challa, you know, yelling, is this your king? This is your king? Like, I'm just like, wow. Yeah. And I want I, I do want to note something really quickly before we move on to the next set of scenes is that this is this is an example of a scene where you really start to move away from this initial image you might have gotten of Killmonger as this intellectual genius who fights for his country. You know, he takes off his shirt and he gives this kind of monologue before the battle begins of how many people he's killed just to get to this one moment where he can challenge for the throne to avenge his father's death. And to me, as much as I love this character, this is the first moment where I'm like, wow, this feels really one-dimensional. And it's something that I've said a lot about these kind of superhero villains that we encounter. But, you know, he's absorbed by, and, and this you mentioned this earlier, and he's absorbed by this revenge, and somehow we are minimizing the rest of his life experiences to this one moment where he's showing off, you know, all these scars that he self-inflicts after he kills someone to the point of saying that each one of these scars, each one of these kills is only meant so I can finally kill you and take the throne. It seems a bit almost reductionist. I think that's a good word to use, reductionist. I think that, yeah, I mean, you're right. He just, you know, we, we start to see kind of a shift from, you know, evil genius, uh, you know, cold-blooded killer to almost just cold-blooded killer. You know, I, I don't, I, I felt like that scene, especially, you know, seeing all the self-inflicted wounds was meant to inspire like wow like you know this this man is like ruthless and crazy but that that's kind of all it did you know i i didn't i didn't feel anything more for him if anything i just i was a little like oh okay like you know he, he killed a lot of people but you, yeah. he's being very you know, he's just he's simplifying it so yeah. much yeah and and again this 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 idea in my mind hasn't fully taken shape yet and it definitely requires the context of future scenes that we're about to talk about but this is the moment where i can point to that it's like okay this is the moment where it began yeah. And so moving on, you know, we, we again, a lot of events have to happen really quickly here. Uh, Ramonda and Nakia, so Nakia helps Ramonda and Shuri escape kind of the main city proper of Wakanda before before Killmonger returns from the, you know, the, the rites that he has to go through to become the king, to become the Black Panther. And they take Ross with them. And as they escape, right before Killmonger has the entire garden of heart-shaped herbs burned, they steal one using a secret way in, which is not really explained at all and don't know really why it exists. It seems a bit of a, a huge uh, liability to have this kind of secret passageway into their sacred garden, but nevertheless, it's there and they take advantage of it. And they grab this herb, which in theory, will they are either going to offer to whoever they're going to see or they use it for another purpose, which we'll talk about in just a second. And they go into the mountains. They go into the mountains where the Jabari tribe, where M'Baku's tribe lives. And... You see them kind of struggle through the weather, uh, trying to trying to find their way up. But before they reach their destination, it flips back over to Killmonger. And we see him really start to take on this role of king. And king in a way that we start to question, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong here, about how his character really develops. You see him talk about how he wants to deliver vibranium weapons, this this treasure of the Wakandan people that they try to hide from the outside world, which is the reason why... They despise Claw so much because he stole this vibranium from them. And he wants to provide these weapons to their operatives out in the world to use to help liberate oppressed people to, to overthrow governments who don't deserve to be in power because they oppress people. And this is a very radical idea. It's not necessarily one that I want to debate like the political merits of it, but in terms of the character development of it. This is the moment where things really began to unravel for Killmonger's character development in terms of 
And unravel is not the right word. I should say it just develops really quickly. Sure. I mean, yeah, to me, you know, how that fire looked in that burning scene was not the yeah, most questionable that. thing yeah. that, you know, ends up happening. Yeah. So to, to be clear, my hot take earlier about the bad, the, the bad uh, CG in one scene was this fire where they burn the entire garden of the heart-shaped herbs. And it's just so obviously CG and so poorly done. I'm like, this movie's budget's like got to be more than 200 even maybe even like up to $300 million. Like what, what are they, where, like where did just a couple extra thousand dollars go to make some better fire? Anyway, we don't have to keep talking about that. I was just trying to get Scott wound up here. Um, yeah. I mean, to me, this is kind of where his character development, you know, you can argue that it kind of takes a turn or it ultimately it's just feels very rushed. And, you know, I mean, yeah, we don't really need to get into, you know, the actual, like whether or not the idea is politically sound or the morals behind it, but it, you know, it kind of just, I feel like we've almost taken on a completely different person um, as yeah. our main villain. Yeah, the intellectual in the museum seems so far removed at this point. And it's, again, I, I do want to emphasize that it's not that I can't see the transformation of the character and understand the transformation of the character. I just don't think it's fleshed out well on the screen. I think so. T- uh, yeah, I'd agree with that. And kind of like I alluded to earlier, I think that maybe even one or two more scenes, uh, you know, might have <laughs> helped make that clear. You know, we, we do get a sense of his pain when we see him uh, undergo the ritual to become the Black Panther when he goes and, you yeah. know, talks to his father. Like, you know, you do, you kind of see what he's become, especially, you know, in that scene uh, when his father asks him, you know, like, no tears for me. He just responds, you know, everybody dies. It's you cold. Know, it's so cold. It really is. But, yeah, I mean, kind of like you said, I, I don't just, I don't think it developed well enough on screen for me to be totally understanding of how he ended up at this point. Yeah, and and that's fair. And I think that this is the moment for us to talk about this, and I think it's important that we are talking about this. That being said, I don't I we're coming off very overly negative about this character because we're talking about it so much, and I do just want to note that like this character is still a very good one and Michael B. Jordan's performance is still fantastic in this role um as we push forward towards the end of the movie here. Yeah, and I'll go ahead and, you know, just second that. I like I said, I he was, you know, Again, I don't want to say this negatively. He was well on track to become my favorite MCU villain, and I still think he delivers a fantastic performance. He's definitely in the top tier, and unquestionably, right? Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. All right, yeah. So as we mentioned, you see him develop this plan that he asks his generals to execute, and that's to deliver these weapons. And as this happens, we flip back over to Ramonda and Shuri and Ross and Nakia, who are up in the mountains trying to find M'Baku. And they are able to eventually find M'Baku, although it seems like they're kind of at the end of their rope because they're freezing up in the mountains. But the but they do find them. They have a meeting with M'Baku. And this is another one of those like awkwardly funny scenes, I think. There's some there's some funny jokes made about white people <laughs> and and about um M'Baku's tribe being vegetarian, even though they apparently have Fisher in, which is a little bit questionable <laughs> in terms of the logic of that, but nevertheless. Right. I mean, yeah, just to kind of jump on that vegetarian line, that might have been one of the scenes where I laughed out loud the, lar- uh, the loudest, excuse me, well, you know, he's just like, you know, be quiet or I will feed you to my children. And there's just this horribly awkward pause. And you're just sitting there in the theater thinking, wow, like stereotypes much. And he immediately just goes, I'm just kidding. We're vegetarian. Yeah. Even though a moment later, he then acknowledges that they have fishermen. Mm-hmm. So it, a little bit confusing about what they're fishing out of the water that's that's vegetarian. Nevertheless. Nevertheless. um, Yeah. I mean, so yeah, you see you know, uh, Ramonda and Shuri, you know, try to convince him to, you know, get in on this, like, war for the throne and protect not only, you know, the isolate, maybe not necessarily the isolationist uh, 
traditions of Wakanda, but more just, you know, the extremism. Stopping, yeah, more yeah. exactly. Like, you know, stopping the extremism, I guess, from taking hold. Yes. And they offer him this heart-shaped herb that they've stolen from the garden. And when he sees it, he says, you know, hold on a second. Maybe you want to use this for something else because his people have already fished T'Challa out of the river that he was thrown into below, which is definitely the moment where you're like, all right, going to have to really suspend some disbelief. One, that they have fishermen if they're vegetarians, and two, that, well, he survived this fall. Well, I, I, okay, to be fair, he didn't really survive this fall. He's like in a coma about to die. And the only thing that's saving him is the fact that he's like frozen in this ice, apparently. Again, suspending some belief. But yeah, it's just, yeah, it's just, it's just, a, it's a messy scene that, that is cobbled together to kind of drive the plot forward, which definitely could have been done better. But I don't know if you had any other additional thoughts to add to this kind of quick resolution of what happened to T'Challa at the end of that ritual fight. I mean, yeah, nothing really to add. It um, it almost seemed a little bit predictable to me. And I mean, this isn't, it's not something that's necessarily bad. You know, it's more just something that like, you know, this, this just kind of had to happen. I mean, when you, you know, when you see someone get like thrown off a mountain in a superhero movie, you should never ever believe that they're dead. And, you know, given like where they'd ended up and the trouble Shuri and Ramonda had gone through to get here, you know, I, you, you felt like this was coming. And although it was a bit rushed, uh, you know, I, I appreciated the scene between T'Challa and his father again. And yeah, the second time he visits the ancestral realm where he confronts his father about the decisions his father had made back in 1992 around his family. Right. And, you know, I thought I thought it did a good enough job just kind of, you know, bringing him back different enough that, you know, he would be approaching this kind of round two with Killmonger, at least like, you know, one on one round two, uh, you know, with a new sense of purpose and decisiveness. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's worth jumping right into that that final set piece, because things do develop quickly. They save him. He visits the ancestral realm. He wakes up. He is Black Panther again because his sister has also stolen the kind of black the Black Panther armor for him. And he immediately goes back to Wakanda, the city proper, and and challenges challenges Killmonger to continue their ritual fight for the for the role of king. And kind of alongside this one-on-one battle for the right to rule Wakanda, there's also this, you know, other battle taking place between Wakabi and Okoye's uh, tribe. Okoye, who is supporting T'Challa, and Wakabi, who's supporting Killmonger, as well as these weapons that are being delivered uh, to the outside world, to the agents that they have in the field, the operatives. So there's kind of like th- three, the three-pronged battle, or a battle with three fronts to it. But you know, which one of these would you like to tackle first, or if you if you think you're up to it, tackling all three at the same time? We can go one by one. We can start by dissecting, I think, Wakabi and Okoye's yeah. fight, if that's all right with you. Sure, let's do it. So, uh, you know, we have another instance of, I mean, we, I think the fight starts off maybe one on five. Um, and, I mean, Wakabi, you know, deals some devastating blows to members of Okoye's tribe um, before, you know, eventually turning it into, I think it was a one-on-one to kind of, like, wrap it up. You know, It was like a one-on-one or a one-on-two kind of thing. It, it shrunk in size. It did. Um, and, you know, not before he, you know, brought in these, like, rhinos to... You know, in, uh, that was Wakabi, but right. Oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. You. Yeah, that, uh, not before. Yeah, you know, Wakabi brings out the rhinos to kind of interfere in this fight. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we, you know, we get more just more of that like acrobatic and creative, fun to watch action that doesn't really feel washed up. You know, things are in small and longer cuts. Yeah, and it's it's so interesting because we've talked about the diversity of the Wakandan 
fighting style from other MCU films. But there's diversity even within the fighting style of the Wakandan tribes, which is definitely worth noting. And the way that Wakabi's tribe fights is much more defensive, right? They have their shields. Whereas you have the much more offensive, acrobatic, as you described, showy, ostentatious almost kind of fighting style of Okoye's people. Right. And I mean, that, you know, that is fun to watch develop. And, you know, you kind of just you sit there and you like you, you know, you just see the differences and you, you know, appreciate that we're getting all these like different perspectives and styles of fighting. And then, you know, then then the Jabari tribe shows up, you know, to kind of also assist T'Challa and his side in this fight. And you get, you know, just again, like another kind of different style of fighting. Like they're much more like I think like grounded. I think they were like, you know, they were much more like charging on the ground rather than like leaping in the air and being acrobatic. Yeah, I think that they're definitely given the stereotype of a more like, I don't know, like not as modernized tribe. Cavemen is too harsh, but like very primitive fighting style with clubs and and things like that, which, you know, you can take that for what it's worth, like it or dislike it in terms of stereotypes that might come along with that, because they also have like fur coat, like fur skins and stuff like that that they're wearing, which is kind of makes you maybe feel a little bit weird. But nevertheless, this is their fighting style, and it is different from the other two. Right. And I mean, you know, I think that just kind of wrap this scene up, you know, you see that uh, Okoye, you know, takes down Wakabi and you, know, you get this really powerful moment where, you know, he almost tries to like tug at her heartstrings a little bit. Guilt you know, her, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, you know, you'd kill me like your lover. And, you know, she's very like for strong. For Wakanda, yeah. Yeah. You know, in her own right. And it's like, you know, for Wakanda, like, of course I would. Yeah. And that was kind of you know, the end of that of that thread line. So to save T'Challa against... Um, Killmonger for last, we'll go ahead and talk about what some people might describe as white saviorism a little bit here. And, and, you know, maybe that's, I don't necessarily agree with that. And I'll talk about why in a moment, but you have Everett Ross, who's kind of been along for the ride so far being guided by the Wakandan people throughout Wakanda. And he kind of takes the role of what should be Shuri in her technology lab, but instead Shuri's out there battling on the field with them. And she has puts it makes him responsible for shooting down these uh, transports that are taking the weaponry out to the operatives and to make kind of a what might be some might consider an intense scene short he is ultimately successful but the big question I do want to ask one is did you think that this scene was cool because it's another example of this kind of remote driving of of these you know well in the first instance it was a car but this time it's a battleship almost. And did what do you feel about this kind of like white saviorism that's been brought up around Everett Ross in this role? I think just to dissect the scene, you know, for like its effects and thrilling nature first. Yeah, like it, you know, it was an exciting scene, and I think that you know, I mean, you know, you know, again, you're not terribly worried, I guess, as you're watching it, but you know, you do kind of feel a sense of urgency. You, you know, you kind of get the feel for this guy who feels very like out of place. You know, at least in terms of you know, he's never dealt with this kind of technology before. He, you know reiterates many times before getting into the battleship that he has no idea what he's waiting for or what he's supposed to be doing um, before, you know, ultimately getting into his quote-unquote, like, American-style battleship. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, that was... Sure, he was kind enough to make it American controls for him. Exactly. <laughs> and, I mean, you know, that was, that was quite cool. Yeah. And to, to the point, the question, I'll answer it first and see if, if my thoughts bounce off of you, that this... I was reading a couple reviews and talking about Everett Ross's role and how it feels like a little bit like white saviorism, especially given the context of some other characters, which maybe we won't get into in this review because it would just be too deep of a dive, I think. But to me, I don't really buy this whole white savior. I mean, I totally get what they're saying, right? This white, the only, pretty much besides Claw, who's played by Andy Serkis, the only white guy in this film is someone who ends up having this 
if not redeeming role, I think the way you described earlier, which I liked, is like this uplifting role for his character, who often sometimes has been seen as this kind of haphazard person who just kind of gets in the way a lot. He's he's uplifted to this point of, oh, he he saved the Wakandan people from like having their technology start wars out in the wild. It, that being said, and I understand that perspective, I don't necessarily see it because even while he's shooting down these these you know these transports of weapons you have shuri who in the middle of battle fighting killmonger is telling him exactly what to do the whole time like when he gets trapped by the i think like the sonic rod like the other the other ships that are trying to repel him from shooting down these fights like she has to tell him how to break free of that lock that they had put on him and that's one example i think there's other examples like you mentioned about him having absolutely no idea what he's doing other examples, you know, include, like, the fact that he's just guided completely around Wakanda. Like, he has so little agency throughout this film, particularly after he enters Wakanda, that it's really hard for me to see this as, like, a white person coming in and saving the day for Wakanda. Because he plays an important role in terms of what he does to shoot down these flying vehicles. But as I said, I don't think he has much agency in that, even in the act of doing it itself. I don't know if that resonates with you at all. It does. And... Yeah, I won't talk too much more about it. I think I'll just, you know, to anyone who kind of feels like they might have, you know, been bothered by that, like, white saviorism that may or may not have been present in this scene, I think that, you know, I would just, like, remind you that, like, you know, kind of like Scott said, like, Shuri is really the one kind of guiding him, controlling him, and, like, none of this is possible without her. And, like, you know, it might be, like, his hand, like, on the remote, but it is her hand guiding it. Yeah, and I do want to emphasize that I understand why people feel this way, and it makes sense to me. I just don't personally agree with agree with that line of thinking, even though there are plenty of other movies out there where white saviorism is a huge issue. Of course. Um, but to me, I mean, especially in this scene, like, you know, Shuri is the one who's the hero. Yep. Front and center. Absolutely agree. All right. So this final, this final threat of this fight is going to be, you know, a couple people fight Killmonger throughout this scene, but I'd like to just focus more on the core family. So there was a moment where Nakia and, as we mentioned kind of already, Shuri were fighting – um, we're fighting Killmonger, but then T'Challa and Killmonger finally resume their fight properly in the mines. Right, and, you know, this takes place kind of in, you know, like, I guess it was the, like, train track, quote-unquote, of yep. uh, Wakanda proper. and The Sonic Railroad, I The believe. Sonic Railroad, that's yep. what it was called. And, you know, this is one of only a few glimpses we actually get of the city, which might have been a little bit disappointing to some. I kind a few glimpses of the mine. The mine, this is rather. the city, yeah. Right, right. Um, yeah, you know, we don't really get to see much of it, but we do, you know, kind of get this cool scene, you know, while, like, the sonic train is passing by, like, watching these two just really go at it. I mean, I, th- I think the effects are really cool. I really liked Killmonger's suit in this scene. Oh, so good. Ugh. I know, I mentioned that was one of the first things I mentioned to you after the, after the movie was over. I was like, wow, those suits were slick. Right, and, you know, like, while this is happening, you know, we do get some more... I guess we'll call it monologuing from Killmonger about his motivations yeah. and how the world took everything from him. It's a very slow, measured fight scene, which I kind of appreciate because there were some very intense moments leading up to it that was kind of nonstop in my view. So I'm glad it kind of slowed it down a little bit at the end. Yeah, that was kind of the feeling I got. And this movie by no means feels like it's too long or like it drags out. Agreed. And so, you know, like I, I do appreciate kind of the slowed nature of the fight scene and, you know, uh, watching, you know, their suits kind of get disrupted by the sonic train so you know it really is just like i mean you know, they're both super human beings because of the, the heart-shaped herb yep. right but you know at this point it really is just like man and man and 
I don't know how, if you you know felt particularly like it was trying to pit these two ideals against each other. You know, the isolationist versus the you know we need to like help people, or rather, um, rather we need to conquer versus help people. That's more what it was. Um, I don't know if you felt like it was pitting those two against each other, but you certainly you know, get a little bit of that in some of the words that are exchanged between the two of them. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't want to get, I don't want to dig too deep into that because I think that that is a topic where we could probably have an entire episode to itself to talk about the, the symbolism of Killmonger and the symbolism of T'Challa as, as people, as characters in this film. But I do agree with you in what you're saying that these two ideologies, I think the film is trying to pit these two ideologies against each other and maybe doesn't success, like do it that well. Almost, because what shines through to me is something else, and that's less the ideology and more who the people are. And at the end of the movie, I think when, you know, spoiler alert here, you know, T'Challa does win the battle, he does kill Killmonger. And at the end of the movie, I was left feeling uneasy, maybe, with how it ended. I was, I knew this wasn't going to end this way, but I was really hoping that Killmonger would be able to be redeemed in this film. And I don't know if you disagree with me, please like go ahead. But I think Killmonger is a character who deserved to be redeemed in this film. Not, you know, he's he's definitely evil. Like his plans to you know liberate the oppressed people out in the world because of racism, etc., is is a notable one. But the way he was going about it maybe wasn't the right way. Yeah, I. I agree with some of what you just said, um, and I'll elaborate. I think that I very much wanted him to be redeemed as well. Um, and I think when you say, like, in this movie, I don't think you literally... Maybe you meant this, I don't know. Like, you meant at the end of the actual movie. I more just meant... Or in my mind, it was, I didn't really want him to die. Um, I think that, you know, if he had just kind of been kept alive and you know, rehabilitated and perhaps examined in a sequel somewhere... Agreed, yeah. I agree with this, this take. You know, he... Yeah, I mean, to me, he just very much deserves redemption in a way that you know i mean he's just not going to get now that he's dead the scene itself was you know kind of touching he finally gets to see the beautiful wakandan sunset that his father had described to him right uh and you know he he does you know kind of make a very active choice to die as a free man rather than eventually be imprisoned but i don't know i mean i i'll I'll take a page out of one of the critiques that i read of this movie and you know talk about one of my other favorite villains in the mcu loki who despite all of his, like, horrors and crimes, you know, eventually, like, is kind of allowed to be redeemed, especially, like, in Thor Ragnarok, you know, no matter, like, what awful things he's done in Thor and Avengers, like... Argu- easily arguable worse than Killmonger. Definitely. You know, yeah. you, you don't see Thor do much more than just kind of slap him around. And eventually Loki does get to be redeemed, and we just don't get that with Killmonger. Like, I wish we could have just seen this person coming from such a place of hurt have a shot at redemption. You know, you might not even necessarily need to give it to him. You know, that could be its own totally, like, you know, some people can't be saved, but that's, I feel like a decision that maybe should have been saved for a sequel rather than just kind of taking him out now. Yeah, and given the symbolism that I was kind of alluding to earlier in in terms of who these people represent, that particular ending doesn't sit, it doesn't sit well with me that Killmonger is irredeemable, especially when you compare him to someone like Loki. And the fact that, I mean, I think it'd be problematic if if he was given the chance and then failed again to be redeemable. I think that's another question that doesn't necessarily sit well with me. But to your point, since this is what we saw, since this was the choices that Ryan Coogler made with the film, this is ultimately 
what we have to talk about. And I don't necessarily think that this this was the outcome of the film that I was hoping for. Even even if I do, again, to kind of zoom out a little bit, understand how it happens and still think that it was a well a well put together ending, even if I didn't like it, didn't agree with it necessarily. I'm going to zoom out even just a little more. And again, like just emphasize, I think I speak for Scott and myself when we say we love Michael B. Jordan's performance, this movie, and we do love, you know, this character, especially as a villain in the MCU, you know, but I think it's because of that that we're just harping on this and things about his character so much. Yeah, and especially because the politics are such a huge part of this film, it, it's hard not to talk about it, I think, um, for better or worse. But I agree with you that it, we are dwelling on the negatives when there are so many positives for us that we could be talking about and talking just as repetitively about. All right, yeah. So that was the kind of final scene in terms of the action in Wakanda, but there is this one additional scene at the tacked on at the end where T'Challa gets to go back to Oakland, back to the scene kind of back or back to the location where that 1992 flashback had taken place. So why don't you walk us through this kind of maybe arguably touching final scene? Sure. Well, T'Challa goes back to Oakland and he turns out he's bought the building where uh, his uncle was killed as well as a couple of the neighboring buildings. And he plans to establish some sort of Wakandan outreach center. Uh, you know, and of course, you know, he shows up with this like little ship and the kids all go nuts. You know, Not a little ship, big ship, big ship. Uh, you know, where we see this, like, space Bugatti. Um, and, you know, it's, it's kind of a touching scene, you know, just kind of with the promise of global outreach, you know, helping impoverished and marginalized communities and, you know, bringing hope to children who, I guess, you know, uh, yeah. have a shot at being re- redeemed. Not necessarily redeemed, but, like, ha- having a shot at at build at, at overcoming maybe these these themes that we see Killmonger resent. So these themes of oppression, these themes of racism, give them a chance to overcome that. And I really view this as the the middle ground of T'Challa that you see kind of throughout the film where you maybe have T'Chaka on one end that we kind of already described and then Killmonger on the other. And T'Challa sits somewhere in the middle. And, and whether you think that's a good place for him to be sitting, it's the place where he resides. And I think that is something that is maintained through this final scene when he's trying to give back to people to not necessarily be completely isolationist, but also not go as far as start, you know, establishing coups for governments. Right. And, you know, it, it kind of just have a touching ending. You know, we see this little kid come up to him, you know, in awe of what is happening. And you just get this very, like, tangible moment, not just little kids running at this large ship, but, you know, just like, wow, like, that's yours. Like, you know, you are this, like... It's empowering. Yeah. Absolutely. It, it kind of carries over that, that message of empowerment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I just like the kind of the way the movie ends, you know, like, who are you? And, you know, he kind of just cracks this little half smile and, you know, we cut to black. Yep. We cut to black, but we do have two kind of credit scenes, uh, one mid-credit scene, one post-credit scene. The first one, I don't know if it's too much to discuss, but it's essentially a solidification of what we've kind of just described as this middle ground that T'Challa is taking. He announces to the UN that he's going to deliver aid to people across the world who need it. So it's kind of a, a middle ground between a little bit further stepping back from Killmonger's plan of kind of aggressive aid, if you will. Right, yeah, and like you said, there's not really too much more to say. We kind of just get this affirmation that this is really what's going to happen, and it, you know, happens on this, like, rather grand stage. You know, again, kind of with, like, this, like, wry humor moment of, uh, you know, like, what could you, you know, as Wakanda possibly have to offer? A third world country, right? Exactly, and, you know, it it just, you know, it's nice to kind of see it take into action. Yeah, and, and it definitely lays the groundwork for, you know, how Wakanda plays a role in Infinity War and how 
Wakanda will play a role in future Black Panther movies that are sure to come. Then we have a post credit scene where I'll just I'm gonna let you completely take this one because I know you're you're really into Bucky Barnes. So we got we get a, we get one scene with Bucky Barnes in, in this film, even though we knew he was in Wakanda somewhere. Right. Yeah. We you know we go through the entire movie, not really sure what happened to Steve Rogers or Bucky Barnes, who at the end of Civil War were seen in a Wakanda, I guess rehabilitation center for Bucky. You know, we see that uh, Bucky's been uh, being helped by Shuri. You know, these little kids you know, are kind of just like teasing him a little bit, you know, they refer to him as the White Wolf, which, you know, to Marvel comic readers, they'll recognize that White Wolf is actually a villain. Um, I don't think by any means that this implies that Bucky will become a villain who, like, spoiler alert uh, for, like, White, or, you know, White Wolf readers, tries to take over the throne as a, you know, uh, disgruntled, adopted older brother of T'Challa. Like, I don't think... Well, the adopted older brother part probably fits if he is, if T'Challa has taken him into his family. Perhaps, but um, in all seriousness, yeah, I mean, you know, if he dons this sort of mantle somewhere down the line, maybe, but it also could have just been, you know, a nice little Easter egg. But, you know, we kind of get the sense that, okay, like Bucky seems to be doing a lot better. You know, he's living out in this like remote little area and he kind of seems to be in possession of all of his marbles. Yeah, maybe for the maybe for the first time since, you know, his his really dealing with Winter Soldier, with being the Winter Soldier uh, and also in Civil War as well. All right, so that kind of wraps up our mainline discussion here. We've already talked about Stanley Stanley's cameo, so there's no reason I think to touch back on that again. But do you have? I know it's really early again, not very far removed from this. But do you have a favorite scene that sticks out from you for Black Panther? I, I mean, I really have had to think about this for a while. Um, certainly, a lot of one-liners that stick out to me. I think that if I had to pick a favorite scene right now, you know, like less than 24 hours removed from the film. Yes, that's what I'm asking you. Sure. I, uh, I'm i going to go ahead and pick the scene where T'Challa and Killmonger are fighting on top of the mountain for the first time, uh, where, which ends with Killmonger throwing T'Challa off of uh, the waterfall, not, you know, but not before kind of, you know, taking him down, killing Zuri and, you know, just, you know, remind, like, you know, showing everyone how powerless he's rendered T'Challa. You know, this is your king. Is this your king? I mean, this for me is the moment right before he, you know, kind of spirals or not spirals rather, but just takes a, you know, different direction, an accelerated direction with his character development. I think to me, he peaked at this point. Yeah. Uh, I think that's an interesting pick. I really, that, that scene sticks out to me in my mind as well, especially for the, this is your king line, which you've already emphasized earlier. For me, it's going to be the first scene in Shuri's lab where they go back and forth. They have their banter. Their chemistry is just incredible throughout this entire film. And then ending with the delete that video immediately line after he gets put on his back by his own suit. Uh, spectacular scene. All right. Any parting thoughts that you want to leave us with about Black Panther? Uh, for me, I'll go first while you kind of collect any parting thoughts you might have. But for me, we haven't, like explicitly called this out very much, but I want to say like we've talked about maybe the the politics of the film, and I want to specifically for one second zoom in on the gender politics of the film and how absolutely awesome all of the female characters are in this film. We've talked about them individually and praised them individually, but I want to zoom out for a moment and say that Ryan Coogler and all of those involved with the film did a fantastic job portraying very strong female leads who are I don't personally find to be sexualized in any way, which often you see like strong female leads even still having this kind of sexual undertone to their characters. And they're great to watch on scene. They are well-developed. They are three-dimensional. Like I can't heap enough praise on these female characters that have that have been designed, that have been executed by these actresses and the directors and producers and writers. I completely agree. And 
you know, especially in an MCU where, you know, we've talked in our Marvel countdown about how we're not particularly thrilled with a lot of the female main characters we've seen in some of these films. Every single one, you know, in this film is just so powerful, well flushed out, you know. Not reliant on men to back them up. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. So did you have any other parting thoughts or does that one just really resonate with you that I've brought to us? That's a good one. Um, you know, I, I'm going to hope that they Marvel aggressively pushes this movie for a DVD release before Infinity War so that I can go see or I can watch it again, uh, perhaps in the comfort of my home. And yeah, I mean, it's, it was just a really enjoyable movie and I, I, you know, I can't wait to watch it again. Absolutely. Me too. I'm, I'm trying to figure out if it's possible for me to see it in theaters again sometime soon, just because I'm so busy. It's not always possible, but Jay, as always, it's been a pleasure talking about comic book movies with you, especially in what is our first ever edition of SpoilerCast. Um, SpoilerCast, just like Some Luck at Scott and Marvel Countdown, uh, is a part of the Media Plug Podcast Network, which means that if you're a patron of Some Luck at Scott slash the Media Plug Podcast Network over on Patreon, then you get all the same rewards for this show as you do for our other ones. We'd appreciate it tremendously if you checked us out over there. That's www. Uh, patreon.com slash media plug pods and even more so if you decide to become a patron to help us cover the cost of doing this show if you choose not to however that's totally okay you can find us on apple Podcasts at some like it's scott uh, where you should rate and review us subscribe and share all those sorts of things so that more people can find out about us all right that's all the housekeeping i've definitely said enough we've said a whole lot about black panther and thank you all so very much for listening to us today We hope that you enjoyed Black Panther. We hope that you go out there and see it again soon because it is a great movie. But until next time, bye, everybody.